this is At Your Cervix, the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapists Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myths on all things pelvic health. This episode is brought to you by Pelvic Relief. Born out of necessity, Pelvic Relief was founded by mother of three, Eleanor Gardner, for all of those who discovered they could not access quality products and information to manage conditions such as pelvic pain, incontinence and painful sex. Led by science and quality, Pelvic Relief have brought together best-in-class products for Pelvic Relief, including source silicon and GRS dilators, O-Nut, EVB support wear, period and incontinence pants, EZ Magic and Yes Lubricants and Moisturisers. Gronya and I highly recommend Pelvic Relief, frequently referring our patients to purchase quality products, knowing they will receive a quality service. To visit the website, visit www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Thank you so much, Pelvic Relief, for sponsoring At Your Cervix podcast. Hello, everyone. We are delighted to be back for season four. I am here with my co-host, Emma. Hello. Uh, Hey. And we're delighted to have a special guest that I met earlier this year in AMSSM, which is the American Sports Medicine Association, um, when we were both presenting at a conference in Austin, Texas. So we have Dr. Joanna Harper here with us today. And Joanna, who is originally from a small town north of Toronto in Canada, is a medical researcher at Lockborough University in the UK, where her research focuses on transgender athletic performance. She's the author of the book Sporting Gender, the history, science, and stories of transgender and intersex athletes, And she has also authored articles on gender diverse athletes in peer reviewed scientific publications. Since 2015, Dr. Harper has served as an advisor on transgender and intersex athletes to multiple sporting federations, including the International Olympic Committee. Fabulous. So welcome, Joanna. We are delighted to have you here today to share your experience and expertise with us and all our listeners. Could you start off by telling us how you became involved in trans performance research? Um, almost. I'll start with a correction. Uh, I am not Dr. Harper. Oh. I, um, I, I'm a PhD student at Loughborough University. I'm uh, several months away from earning my doctorate. So uh, next year, I'm oh, so close. Do you know what? I took that from the AMSSM um, bio book and it was Dr. Harper there. So apologies. That's me getting my stuff wrong. But we get that all the time too, actually, because when... Um, physiotherapists or physical therapists in the USA are a doctor and whereas we are not so we're always getting introduced as a doctor when we're not Um, (laughs) but good soon to be Dr Harper tell us a little bit how you got involved in this research. So uh, from a very personal level um, I'm uh, I'm a scientist I'm an athlete and I'm transgender and those things came together for me in 2004 when I began my gender transition. As a scientist, I knew that I would be starting to run slower. And, and um, when I was young, I ran a 223 marathon. So, you know, I was pretty good. Um, but, you know, I, that, that was in the men's category. And, and so I certainly wasn't going to be a professional or anything, but I was pretty good. Um, but I, so I knew I'd get slower because of, of the reduced testosterone that would result from my, my hormone therapy. But I thought it'd be kind of a gradual change and not that much. I was wrong on both counts. Within weeks, I was noticeably slower. After nine months, I was running 12% slower. And that's the difference between serious male and female distance runners. Um, and so as a scientist, I was hooked. Uh, I started to learn about the endocrinology and the exercise physiology involved. And, and my educational background to that point was uh, I had an undergraduate degree in science and, and physics and a master's degree in medical physics, which is the application of physics principles to the very high-tech world of modern medicine. So, um, but I, I started to learn about endocrinology and exercise physiology on that. And I started to gather data very slowly. It took me a while, but in 2015, I had enough data to publish a paper, uh, a retrospective look at 200 race times of eight trans um, using a metric that World Masters Athletics uses the trans women were no more competitive in the women's division than they had been in the men's division and and collectively were a lot slower. Uh, This is a small retrospective study, one sport. Generally speaking, this would be a very minor study. 
but there was literally nothing else out there on the performance of trans athletes. Um, so <clears throat> suddenly I found myself in the position of having more published data on trans athletes than all the universities in all the world combined. Um, so within months, I was helping the International Olympic Committee write transgender policy. I'd served as an expert witness for world athletics. Media came calling. In 2018, Loughborough University, which is generally considered the world's number one sports science university, contacted me and, and asked, said that they were looking to start up a program to look at, at the physiology of trans athletes and could I help them set up their program? Told them I'm not qualified to do that. I don't have a PhD. What have a PhD? Well, why don't you come here and get one? See, they got it wrong as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everyone's assuming. <laughs> so, so I did. Uh, in 2019, I, I moved to England, um, mm. and I've just finished my third year uh, of my PhD research. Uh, uh, and, and we have three studies going here. We have two lab studies and an online survey study. Uh, I can tell you more if you want or we can stop there and move on to other questions. No please if you would because we are very new to this area and knowledge is power right so so I'd, I'd love to hear more if, if that's okay please. So the three studies that we're doing at Loughborough University one is a longitudinal study where we try to get trans athletes into the sports lab before they start hormone therapy we measure size, strength, speed, stamina uh, with standard exercise tests, uh, get, draw blood, get muscle biopsies, ultrasounds of the heart, um, those, those sorts of uh, uh, metrics uh, before they start hormone therapy. And then every three months thereafter for up to 24 months. Um, we always knew that, that given the difficulty of finding trans athletes, serious trans athletes, especially, before they start hormone therapy. We knew this would be a small cohort, but global pandemic hit. <laughs> um, so as a result, at this point, we have one athlete that we have 18 months of uh, post-hormone therapy data on. Uh, so, so it's become a case study. Um, the fortunate thing is, is this is a truly elite athlete. Uh, a, 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 uh, a very high level British cyclist. Um, and um, we were planning on, on continuing this study for 24 months and we still will to a certain extent, but the 18 month data that I can't really go into <laughs> on are significant enough that we're going to publish now. And, and I'm currently writing up the first draft of the manuscript. Um, so, uh, so, it, while it's just one athlete, it's a very important study, the most important study that we've done. The other lab study is a cross-sectional study where we get trans athletes into the sports lab after they've been on hormone therapy for at least a year and bring them in one time for two days of measurements. Again, measure size, strength, speed, stamina, and get blood values. We bring in a match set of cisgender uh, women in the same sports uh, and, and make measurements on them. Um, that study just started a year ago. Again, the, the pandemic you know, messed us up, but um, so far I, I have uh, data on nine trans athletes and, and I have three cisgender athletes. Uh, and, and so um, we'll run that study for another six months. Uh, and, and close it down. But the third study is an online study. It's sort of an extension of, of what I did in 2015, where you look at athletes in sports like athletics or weightlifting or swimming, where you can easily make measurements before and after uh, and, and gather competition data on, on those athletes. That study actually just closed a few days ago and we're starting to, to evaluate that as well. So. Um, so well on my way on, on the PhD, but still got a little more work to do. <laughs> Fabulous. No, it, it's, it's much needed research and will really, really help develop our understanding. And um, one of the things I am keen to do, just because I know that there will be many people listening who aren't familiar with some of the terms, I was wondering if you could just break down um, the difference between cisgender and transgender um, for some of the listeners who don't come from a health professional background. Sure. 
Um, transgender people can be defined as those who are unhappy with um, their sex at birth or, or natal sex. Um, and, and so that can include people who transition to live uh, in the gender that's the opposite sex to, to which they were born, or it can just be people who choose to live outside of the gender binary. There are, are certainly trans people or, or more specifically non-binary people who, who reject both male and female levels. Uh, labels rather, um, and so um, so so that's sort of the umbrella term transgender. Um, a cisgender person is somebody who was happy with uh, with the, the, their birth sex, or, or uh, and, and you know you could say typical people, or, or uh, heaven forbid, normal people even. But who's really normal? I mean, yeah, right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I just think it's a mindfuck because that's. There's so many, I often think that every day there's a new term that I need to get used to. And I do think that it's nearly, I, I, you know, I just find that there's, because even within the binary and um, I suppose identification, I think there's lots of subsections of labels. So I'm trying to keep up. And it's funny because Emma and I are involved in both clinical practice and research for postpartum, I suppose, cisgendered um, women uh, returning to sport. And we feel like research focus has only just began to look at cisgendered women or mm -hmm. anyone outside of cisgendered male, actually, um, all of a sudden. So now we're trying to catch up on all the other subpopulations that we need to better understand so that we can provide the best care to our patients and general public, basically, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's quite a minefield, isn't it? It's terminology. Can you help... Um me or the listener to understand what might be the difference if you like between males who transition to female um, and cisgendered women and if we're thinking of the transgender athlete how might that then impact on 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 their performance during when with their sport um it, it certainly depends um whether a, a trans woman or someone who does undergoes a male to female transition, um, whether that person has undergone male puberty or not. Most times that happens, um, but there is certainly a growing cohort of, of trans people who don't ever experience their, uh, the puberty associated with their natal sex. Um, uh, so, um, but, Anyone who undergoes a, a male type puberty uh, will get a surge of testosterone and, at that time and, and it will make enormous differences in their physical capabilities as an athlete. Uh, and anyone who doesn't undergo male puberty won't get the testosterone surge and doesn't have those athletic advantages. What so, might they be, those athletic advantages? Size, strength, speed, stamina. Um, are, are all greatly enhanced by the, the uh, increased testosterone that, that uh, accompanies male puberty. Mm -hmm. And if um, if they then do go through uh, that that transition after puberty, to, uh, the focus really is on hormone levels. Um, I mean, what would ordinarily happen? during that transition period? So um, the, the hormone therapy that trans women undergo, um, because trans women, and uh, we identify as women, and so we want to look as much like other women as we can. And to do that, we become hormonally female. So we suppress testosterone, add estrogen. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, so for instance, 95% um, of all uh, women are, have a testosterone level of under two nanomoles per liter. A recent study of almost 250 trans women found that 94% of them had testosterone under two nanomoles per liter. So in, in terms of testosterone, which is, is the primary driver of the athletic difference between men and women, trans women have the same uh, uh, levels as 
typically have the same levels as as um, as cisgender or, or, or quote unquote normal women. Um, and one of the things that happens very quickly is uh, hemoglobin levels will follow the uh, testosterone. None of the hemoglobin cells in our body are more than 120 days old. So um, it's always being um, uh, recreated in our body and, and the amount of hemoglobin that we create is uh, proportional to the testosterone in our blood. So um, studies have found that within three to four months, trans women will acquire female typical hemoglobin values too. And these are very important for endurance sports. And in my particular case, it's why, you know, within six weeks, I noticed I was running slower is that my hemoglobin levels had dropped substantially. I didn't know it at the time, of course, but, but, but that, that's why um, there's this rapid decrease uh, in endurance in, in trans women. Now, um, so hemoglobin changes very quickly and, and completely from male levels to female levels. Strength changes more slowly and incompletely. Um, trans women uh, will lose strength. It won't happen as quickly. Um, uh, I guess I can say that, that our, our athlete that we have 18 months of data on, we have four strength measures on her and um, the strength loss has been <clears throat> roughly uh, linear over that time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the, the strength loss experienced by trans women will be substantial, um, but uh, it, won't take trans women down completely to, to cis women levels. There was a paper that just came out yesterday from Brazil uh, suggesting, and this is a fairly small cross-sectional study of non-athletes, but it suggested that uh, the difference between trans women and cis women, again, non-athletes, in terms of hand grip strength is roughly one third the size of the difference between um, cis men and cis women. Uh, so um, still a significant advantage, but much less than the advantage that, that uh, cisgender men have over cisgender women. That's where a lot of the debate in this topic lies when it comes to sports and ethos eligibility for competing in certain categories and things. And it's interesting because I remember your fab talk at um, the conference in Texas and I remember then we had a great discussion afterwards and we were discussing the you know could it be considered as a healthy competitive advantage in many ways mm -hmm. um, and I did resonate with what you were saying in the sense that as a former competitive more so in my um in my childhood and teens I was a competitive left-handed tennis player and I do understand that that was a bit of the ace up my sleeve that I carried because most people prepare and train for playing a right-handed person. So it was always a bit of a obstacle for people to get their head around. However, I do then question, there's comparisons, but then you could also challenge that if someone wants, they can train to be better at playing left-handed people. Um, and if they know that they're in, they're always going to come up against a left-handed person in their tennis circuits and things, they could be really smart about how they apply their training and they could potentially close some of that gap. Am I right in thinking that if there are some retained strength benefits um, by trans women, there's no way that cisgender women can close that gap, is there? Well, I mean, I mean you know, you can do increased strength training. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. There's, there's, there's <laughs> always, there's a first, you know, you say, when you say no way, there's always, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, but if we're talking about legal way. Um, uh, yes, let's stick to legal. <laughs> um, you know, certainly uh, in, increased resistance training can, can certainly help with strength of all athletes. Um, but, but yeah, it's true. Hormone therapy does not turn trans women into cis women, and there will be some remaining advantages. So it is a reasonable question to ask, should we allow trans women to compete against cis women? 
And while I say it's a reasonable question to ask, it, it's, it's one that's certainly not settled at this yeah. point. And, and, and to say, you know, we need to ban trans women, which one group says, or we need to categorically allow trans women to compete with no restrictions. Uh, those are, are the two extremes that, that many people seem to go to. And, and I would suggest that we should steer towards a more middle ground where, where we look at the science and, and try to make, you know, reasonable, um, uh, reasonable accommodations for trans people, but also to keep in mind that all women deserve to have a category in which they can enjoy meaningful competition. So, you know, it, it's it kind of a difficult balancing thing, um, but, but certainly, uh, you know, trans women are not on the verge of taking over women's sports. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's been 46 years since the first trans woman competed and, and trans women are still hugely underrepresented in all levels of sport. Um, so it, it's not like this is a crisis that needs to be solved tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I think the most well-known recent case would be Laurel Hubbard, who is a weightlifter. She did partake in the 2020 Summer Olympics. And can you help us understand how that decision was made and, and even why there was so why it was so divisive um, that she partook within, within, that, within that sport? So um, prior to transition, Laurel Hubbard was, was a, a pretty successful uh, weightlifter. Um, Laurel Hubbard set a New Zealand national junior record that held for 15 years when she was competing in this competition. However, Laurel Hubbard, when competing in the men's competition, was not going to make it to the Olympics. Uh, she, she just wasn't that good uh, in, in the men's competition. She, uh, she started to drink gender transition like 2012, 2014, something like that. Competed for the first time in the women's category in 2017. Um, and, you know, it, it was clear that Laurel was now um, competitive on the world stage um, where she hadn't been before. Um, so it, it's clear that you know, there were some remaining advantages, but but Laurel was was certainly um, you know far from from dominant. Um, I, I think her her most representative finish was sixth in the world championships in the 2019 uh, 2019 uh, International Weightlifting Federation Championships. A very good performance, but not the best in the world. Um, but certainly somebody who's in the top 10 in the world, if you're competing in, in regional championships, you're gonna win. And, and, and so that certainly was, was you know, a sticking point is that she won championships in, in the Australasia uh, region. Um, and you know, people were unhappy about it. She qualified for the Olympics and, and it should be pointed out, she was 42 years old. Um, it's not, it's happened before where uh, men and women in the early 40s have qualified for Olympic weightlifting, but it, it's certainly an outlier in terms of age. Um, um, and, and so there was, was quite a, a, a controversy. Uh, Laurel did not have a good Olympic Games. Um, she uh, failed to, to, to um, uh, clear a, a lift in, in snatch, which is one of the two lifts, and so finished last 14 in her competition. So she certainly, um, you know, again, didn't win anything at the Olympics, but, but she did qualify. And, and there were people who saw that as controversial or also people who saw that as a milestone. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is a group of people who consider that trans females are encroaching on women's sports. Um, and I think that's, you can argue, you can argue it both ways, but that, that I think is what makes it so divisive. Um, how, how does the IOC determine 
who what are the criteria for trans females to partake in these sports so that's gotten very complicated in the last oh <laughs> but um let me try to, to give you a, a brief overview first of all the ioc doesn't determine okay it's the national federations who choose the teams that go to the olympics and they do so generally following rules of their international competition or their international federations. So in Laurel's case, it was the International Weightlifting Federation that set rules and the New Zealand Federation that picked the team. And the International Weightlifting Federation for the 20, uh, 2020 Olympics said that uh, if trans women held their testosterone under a specific value, uh, for more than 12 months, then they could compete. Um, and that was the, uh, uh, a value that was set by the IOC in, in 2016 when I was, was part of that. And, and those were guidelines and not hard and fast rules. Um, so, so Laurel was allowed to compete by the International Weightlifting Federation. Zealand selected their team in Laurel. Um, now, since then um, the, the IOC has suggested uh, a, a different uh, path and, and they have specifically said that each sport should be allowed to, to make their own rules, but they've, they've said 10 uh, principles that, that they think should apply in the inclusion and lack of uh, <clears throat> discrimination uh, are, are very important principles and, and they don't, and the IOC has suggested that um, there shouldn't be restrictive policies until there are data to support them. Um, but they've given each, they've explicitly given each international federation the right to make their own rules. And so that has happened and, and things have very much splintered. Uh, the, um, uh, for instance, uh, World Rugby now bans trans women from international matches and many of the uh, national unions, including the RFU here in uh, England and the IRFU in Ireland have also banned trans women from contact rugby. Um, uh, FINA, the governing body for swimming, has banned all trans women who've experienced male puberty from, from uh, women's swimming. Uh, and um, different sports, um, cycling has now gone to two years of hormone therapy. Uh, triathlon, international triathlon, now says two years of hormone therapy, but four years since the last time you competed in the men's category. Um, British triathlon has now banned trans women. So, so it's all splintering now and, and going in, in a thousand different directions. So it, it's really hard to say where this is all going to go in the future. I know, and that's a difficult one because I had read about the swimmen has only recently this year made that decision. Am I right? Um, with their body? And I do remember reading that they have discussed that they want to remain inclusive and that they're perhaps suggesting that there will be a separate um, category for trans women to compete in. Um, whether I don't know, you'll know better than me whether the numbers will exist um, to make that uh, the competition that women will want to, you know what I mean? Like people want to compete against multiple people, and that's the sport. Um, but I suppose <clears throat> the research element in me has so many questions and so many, um, I'm so curious about how we manage to research stuff because I know the difficulties in researching cis female and carrying out research and getting ethical approval for carrying it out because there's so many confounding variables with women and their physiology. And then we think about trans women and there's such a sliding scale of, like you mentioned at the beginning, whether someone is just unhappy with their gender at birth and identifies um, as a woman, but doesn't do anything about it um, other than live their life as a woman. Um, and then people who go undergo hormone therapy or people who undergo surgical um, transition and hormone therapy. So there's quite, how do we research when there's so many variables? Um, certainly, you know, there are a, a number of questions, as you say, but certainly um, I, I think that the focus 
should be uh, on researching what happens with testosterone suppression. Um, there are a lot of factors involved, but the biggest differentiator between male athletes and female athletes is testosterone. And so that's at least a good place to start. But as, as you say, this is a very complex topic and we've only just started to scratch the surface. Uh, Loughborough University is, is the first university uh, to look at this. Um, uh, <clears throat> And what we need are multinational, multicentric studies. Um, and I'm, you know, hoping that I will be involved with these after uh, I finish my, my PhD. Uh, talks are underway. I don't really want to go public yet, but um, but it looks promising that that we will get, you know, more institutions, more countries involved, and. Uh, you know, I see a bright future for the topic, but we're not going to have definitive answers for years, probably decades. I know, and I think um, that's always the other frustrating thing too, when you're currently doing your research and you're starting to see the outcomes and you're analyzing the data, you're already formulating the next questions that you want an answer to, but research is slow. It takes time. It takes time to, I suppose, design and complete it, never mind write it up, publish it, and then disseminated and it's the dissemination process and making sure that it gets to the organizations, the populations that need it, and that I suppose something is actioned as a result of it. Um, that's the difficult part because we see this in the areas of healthcare that we work in as well. Um, I'm looking there, I'm just gonna wait for a second because I did accept Emma in and I'm not sure if she has appeared yet. And I just wanna check, um, is there anything else in particular that I wanted to cover? Um, Yes, I want to, I suppose, have you any advice on to give us in terms of as healthcare professionals and as educators in, I suppose, the area of pelvic health that we work in, how do we navigate this area without because I do feel like it's a little bit of a minefield in terms of you can make one wrong step or say one wrong thing and suddenly you've got um a lot of um aggro towards towards you and it may be something that was really innocent or just a lack of understanding on our part how do we navigate it because I know that um our professional network are currently producing transgender information leaflets for pelvic health because that's a population that we currently do not provide for and we're very aware of that and we have owned that and we are now trying to produce um, leaflets that will serve our trans women and trans men. How do we ensure that we navigate this um, appropriately or have you any advice for us as healthcare professionals and researchers? Well, you know, certainly the terminology can be tricky. Um, you know, if you have questions over, you know, what to call people, what pronouns to use, um, ask. And, and, and um, you know, trans people will, will certainly, uh, you know, will certainly uh, volunteer information. Um, I, I would say that as a starting point, um, it's, um, I think it's important to suggest that the trans people are who we say we are. Um, you know, uh, I am a woman because I say I'm a woman uh, in most things that matter. Um, you know, and so what I would suggest is, is certainly that, um, you know, you treat people uh, how they want to be treated. Um, I, I certainly do admit that when it comes to sports, the physiological differences between trans women and cis women are important and need to be considered when we look at uh, elite sports particularly. But when we look at, at everyday life, um, you know, we should not consider that trans women are men invading women's spaces but are women who have been misplaced in spaces uh, uh, up until they, they transitioned. Um, and I think 
that that helps a certain amount with sports too. I, I think if, um, you know, if people think that trans women are men invading women's sports, then each and every successful trans female athlete comes in a front. Um, however, if we look uh, at trans women as a physiologically distinct subgroup of all women, then what I would suggest is that, um, that as long as trans women are not overrepresented in the sporting arena, then, then certainly you know, the policies that we have in place or, or sports governing bodies have in place are probably fairly reasonable. Um, and, you know, like uh, we spoke earlier about Laurel Hubbard being the first trans woman, uh, to, to first openly trans woman to compete in the female category. You know, the IOC first allowed trans women to compete in 2004, uh, and Laurel was the first in, in the 2020 games, which were in 2021. But, um, but if we look at the size of the trans population and the number of women who were competing in Tokyo, there should have been somewhere between 30 and 70 trans women competing. And, and so the idea that, that one trans woman was competing, and this was a horrible thing, I would say, well, why weren't there 30? And, and, you know, the reason is, is that in many countries, trans women are, are lucky to stay alive, let alone you know, represent their countries in, in international sports. So you know, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of uh, making trans people less marginalized. And, and I would suggest that when we look at recreational sports, we, we understand that. You know, um, participating in recreational sports is good for everyone. And, and so, you know, in, in elite sports, I, I think we do need to look very carefully at the physiological differences, but, but in recreational sports, we should be crafting rules to try to be more inclusive of, of marginalized people, including trans people. I think that's actually a really nice way of describing it. And actually, as you were saying it, Joanna, it made me think, about particularly with the high performance sports and the like the Olympic Games and things, perhaps it should be considered no different than how we screen all athletes for illegal substances and levels um, of substances and in terms of looking at testosterone levels, not that testosterone is illegal, that is not what I'm saying, but I just mean if we're looking at what physiological level of testosterone should be considered akin to cisgendered women, there could be a cutoff point and it could be a system in place like that is that fair to say well that 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 is what has been in place um and while it's not a perfect rule it's it, it, it is a, a reasonable thing that the question is what level do you have as a cutoff level and how long do you require trans women to maintain that level before they're allowed to compete those are are two uh challenging questions uh that 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 uh, groups are, are grappling with now, but um, but I do think that 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 is a, a reasonable thing to do. But but it, it should be acknowledged that that won't eliminate all advantages. And and one of the things that that I like uh, and, um, is is a rule put in place by the International Volleyball Federation. Um, you know, uh, height is one of those things where men have advantages over women and height's very important in volleyball. So the International Volleyball Federation has said, in addition to restricting testosterone, each national country can only have one trans woman on their team. And, and I think that this is certainly a, a very reasonable thing. And now just to say no trans woman has ever competed at the international level. So having one per team, <laughs> really much of a restriction given that no trans woman is qualified. Now there was a Brazilian woman who was good enough to qualify for her country's national team, but her teammates didn't want her and she wasn't selected, which is oh. sad. But, but, and that's where this one person, one trans woman per team kind of came into place. They were worried, oh, well, what if somebody, some country put six trans women on, on the floor at some 
at a point. And, and so they put this rule in and, and it, it's unlikely to, you know, to come into effect anytime soon, but I, I don't think it's a, a, an unreasonable restriction. And, and so I, and I think it's a case of, of a federation being creative. Um, and, and I'm all in favor of that. Um, and, and so um, I, I, I think that, you know, testosterone suppression at elite levels is a very important thing to monitor. Um, but in some cases you may need to go beyond it. Now, I, again, when I, if we go back to recreational sports, I, I would say, if we, if we, if, if the people who run the sports levels aren't testing other athletes for doping, then they shouldn't be testing trans women for testosterone levels. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I would say that's sort of a cutoff line. If, if you don't test for doping, then you should just let trans women play. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And funny, just thinking in the background, although your research is, I take it, focused on trans women solely. Do you have no, any? No, nope. actually. Oh, um, good. Good. Tell us a little so, bit about the transition trans men, because we may have listeners who either are in this population or are interested. So most of the athletes that I've dealt with are, are, are trans women. I would love to see more data from trans men. If there's any trans men listening, please <laughs> contact me. But um, uh, I do have data from a trans man uh, weightlifter. And in particular, he's a power lifter. And over three years, and, and power lifting uh, is uh, the results of the sum of three lifts, uh, bench press, deadlift, and squat. And um, over three years uh, of, of testosterone suppression, trans men inject testosterone, uh, which is illegal for everybody else, but trans men are allowed to do it if they get a therapeutic use exemption. And so his, uh, his scores, his, his totals, weight totals, powerlifting have gone up by 35% in, in three years. Uh, you know, he, he's uh, added 100 kilograms which is, is a huge difference. But of course, cis men are uh, of the same weight are 50%. So he's not, he hasn't made up all of the deficit that, uh, that occurs because he didn't go through male puberty, but he's made up a pretty good chunk of it. And is it possible for, because we talked about the strength um, gains that trans women maintain, particularly when it comes to looking at those elite um, performance sports. But when we're talking about trans men, is it physiologically possible, or maybe we don't know yet, is it physiologically possible for them to completely close that gap? Well, there, there, um, there is a study of fitness tests of trans personnel. Um, and in that test, um, the trans men, after two and a half years of... Uh, of testosterone therapy actually outperformed the cis men in the number of sit-ups per minute that they could do. Um, you know, it's a fairly narrow measure, but but by that one measure, in that one study, uh, the trans men did outperform the cis men. Um, you know, trans men are never gonna be as tall on average or as large. Uh, so, you know, it's gonna be disadvantageous in things like rugby, basketball, and so on so far. But I, I think in those sports where we have weight categories, um, you know, there's a professional men's, a trans man who's a professional boxer. Uh, he's not in a heavyweight category, but, you know, he's a buff dude if you look at him. And, um, and uh, you know, um, uh, and, and he wins, you know, and, and so, um, uh, so, you know, trans men can be successful in men's sports. Um, th there are some things that they won't ever be able to make up, but, um, <clears throat> but uh, you know, certainly testosterone is certainly a, a wonderful performance enhancing drug. And, and um, you know, again, the research remains to be seen just how successful trans men can become and how much data we can get from them to see exactly what happens. And again, trans men out there, please contact me. <laughs> 
I'm really interested, Joanna, to to hopefully not go off on a tangent, but just to have a have a have a view of your opinion on Casta Semenya and and probably other female uh, cis women uh, female athletes who have been tested um, and have found that their testosterone levels are too high. Um, I mean, this this testosterone testing is affecting cis women um, as as well as as well as obviously affecting the, the the trans female community as well. Is that right? So, um, the 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 normal range of testosterone for for uh, women is a very narrow range, um, uh, and so the ninety five percent confidence level is under two nanomoles per liter, but that leaves two and a half percent of women who can be above that. And the, the number one cause of elevated testosterone in cisgender women is a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, which you're probably familiar with. Um, and, and that can cause some mild elevation. But um, if, if, we, if we're concerned about uh, levels of testosterone that are truly performance, very performance enhancing and get into male levels of testosterone, then we have to look at things that are called differences of sexual uh, development uh, or DSDs or, or uh, intersex conditions or virtual uh, sort of uh, variations of sex characteristics. There's a number of different terms that can be used. Um, and in particular, there's a subset of these conditions whereby a human being can be born with external female genitalia, but internal testes. These people are identified as female at birth, of course, because that's how we identify people. Um, but some section of these XY DSDs, because the internal testes correlate extraordinarily highly with the Y chromosome. Um, and, and so a subsection of, uh, of, of those XY DSDs also experience male puberty and all of those advantages. Uh, and so um, world athletics uh, in their current policy has uh, targeted four XY DSDs as uh, imparting such advantages over other women that, uh, that women who have these XY DSDs should reduce their testosterone in order to compete in the female category. Not to say that they're not women, but in order to compete fairly meaningfully to allow all women that, that these women with these intersex conditions have to uh, uh, lower their testosterone. Um, and uh, Castor fought this, so presumably she has one of these four XY DSDs. Um, I was actually a witness at her case, and it was a fascinating week. But um, uh, but so so this is 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 certainly a, a, a very challenging um, uh, situation. Um, but it, it's certainly not just Castor Semenya. Um, yeah. Let me plug my book here. Um, but um, please, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, this situation goes all the way back to the 1930s. Um, a very high percentage of, uh, of the women who were successful in sports probably had these XY DSDs. And it was a fascinating period in history. Uh, and I wrote mm. a whole chapter on the 1930s. Uh, and um, uh, I also wrote a chapter on, on intersex conditions too. But, um, uh, but if you want more information, um, yeah. I, I would immodestly suggest my book. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely put a link to your book in the show notes so that people can access it. Um, because I think we all need to have more understanding of this area, and we all need to do more to. I suppose be inclusive so that's that's one of the aims that Emma and I have and to be honest with your upcoming research we'd be really keen to get you back on the show maybe 
next year or something for any updates because this is an ongoing conversation as you say it's only touching the surface um, and it'd be really interesting and I would also um, I'll send you the leaflets when they come out from our professional network because it'd be really interesting to get your opinion on whether we have any improvements to make. Okay yeah sure. Fantastic. We've had a blast. It's been very educational. I really hope that our listeners have enjoyed this. And again, we want to keep the discussion going. So if anyone listening to this has any questions and um, anything they didn't understand, even that was mentioned within the discussion, comment, let us know so that we can continue the discussion and know what perhaps we need to discuss and empties out in future discussions. But Thank you, Joanna, for sharing your expertise and thank you for all the research you're doing. And let's wait until you're Dr. Harper and have you back. <laughs> and yeah, I'd love to come back next year. And um, uh, again, uh, Grania, I love meeting you in, in Austin and I certainly hope uh, our paths cross in, in real life in the not too distant future again. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was really, really good. And I just remember actually after my talk, because I had you already in the program, I had looked through and I was like, there's someone from the UK. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, I want to go to that session. So I was like, I have to find you. And sure, you came up after my talk. So I was like, ah, we need to, we need to meet. Um, very, very good. Small world. And it's great. But it's been fantastic. And yeah, let's keep the discussion going. Chat soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. We always love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have. So please do contact us via Instagram at your cervix underscore the podcast or Twitter at your cervix underscore PM. Don't forget to check out our wonderful sponsor, Pelvic Relief. You can find them at www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Gronya and I really look forward to catching up with you next week.